Welcome to the Bloom Podcast, Human Stories of Resilience. And I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today and paying my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who might be listening. Hey, Susie. Hey, Steve. Are people meant to live together, do you think? Oh, yeah, yes. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad we've got that sorted. Right. I had hoped there might be a bit more to it than that. <laughs> you mean you mean in terms of partners? Yes, um, romantic. I don't think I get a choice with the children. <laughs> no, romantic relationships, let's say. I'm interested in this because there's an idea or an ideal. People meet, you find your soulmate and then you live together and commit to each other and you get married and you live together happily ever after. And then you, you know, you make it into your nineties and then you cark it. Job done. I've always quite liked the idea of a, a 10 year marriage being a, uh, an alternative choice. Oh, tell me about that. How would that work? I suppose you, you sign up for your first 10 years and then at the end of the 10 years, Nicole Kidman, Tom Cruise style, you either, <laughs> you either re-sign up again or you amicably go your separate ways. I think it would have to be the only option. I think if it were a choice, no one would do it. It would be like a prenup, right? It would, it would have a, a shadow yeah. of... It would suggest your heart wasn't really in it. Yeah. So maybe all partnerships or civil partnerships or marriages could be this 10-year choice. I do like that idea. For a couple of reasons, it gives you a graceful get out anyway at the end of 10 years. You can both look at each other and say, well, we did our 10 years. Thank you very much. We'll move on. Or a moment to pause and say, yeah, this is going well, but we probably need to work on such and such. I've often thought that marriage counselling, by the time most people get to marriage counselling, I suspect it's too late and they should really be doing it much earlier in the piece when things are are 95% good as opposed to 70% up the spout or whatever it is that happens. And you never really know, do you, when you look at other people's relationships, sometimes even when you look at your own relationship, you never really know quite where they're at. I think that's true. I remember when I told one quite good friend that I was separating from my first husband that they said, oh, wow, if you two can't make it, then who can? What hope is there for anyone else? Huh. I thought, oh, wow, that's so, so we were existing in their head as a obviously, as some kind of perfect couple who were not on the brink of separation. I think it's been a theme of a lot of our time together, hasn't it, talking about the mystery that is other people's lives and how you mustn't assume that what you think is going on is really what's happening with somebody else. And yet we always can use that reminder because we still do make that assumption. I, I mean, I suppose we look at something, we see it the way we see it. I'd like to introduce you to somebody. I'd like to introduce you to Liz, who has a story to tell about the relationship that she was in and about the way that it fell apart and about how tough it's been since then. You know, we, we had that um, really good discussion with the divorce lawyer at the beginning, I think it was of season two, who'd been through that experience herself, but she was talking about it from the point of view of, you know, advice on how to divorce well. And it's not always possible, is it? I mean, there are so many nasty divorces. I'm sure we all know a few friends who've been through this, that and the other. So it's clearly not always possible. But I think it's really fascinating to hear Liz's experience from the inside and her recalling the various different stages. Let's meet her. Welcome to the Bloom Podcast, Liz. Tell us a little about how you met Damien 
and what the the relationship and the marriage was like. We met when we were backpacking overseas together. We did some travelling together. We did some travelling on our own. And then when we were ready to settle down, Damien decided he was going to go and join the military. He was posted to another city. So we had to make a decision on whether we were going to stay together. And that was really the main factor in us um, deciding to get married. So far, so okay. But I'm guessing, Liz, then things started to go wrong. Tell us about that. In the beginning, it was great because we were in a new city. It was all a great big new adventure. Uh, we had a couple of years together and then we had a couple of um, of children and really it was after our second child that things started to go really downhill. Were there traits in Damien that you could see while you were married, while the relationship was good, that then came to the front when when things were became not so good? Yes, but I think in the beginning of the relationship you kind of overlook them a bit, overlook the red flags I was young, I was naive, it was all romantic and fun. He was very good at the romantic side of things in the beginning, lots of flowers and chocolate and and all sorts of things. And then, yeah, the, uh, I don't even know how to say it, it just it just started getting worse and worse and there were more and more red flags. And then I think maybe the stress of a second child is when it all started really coming out. What were the red flags, Liz? If he got angry or annoyed, he was very good at stonewalling me and he could do that for days. He rarely took responsibility for when things went wrong. So when we were together, he was constantly blaming his father um, rather than saying that his life turned out, out the way it did because of anything he'd done. And then it, it just got worse. So after the kids came along, he was going out and spending a lot more time with his friends and leaving me at home with the kids. Uh, sometimes he'd spend all night away and then come back. It just built and built and built and it got to a point where it wasn't great but we had young kids and I was trying to make it work for the kids. And then it got to a point after that where I discovered he'd been unfaithful and that was really that was really the point where I decided the, the marriage wasn't worth continuing. How did you discover that? He told me. He'd been away for work, so he wasn't in the house a lot. And then he came home one day and we went out for dinner and he told me he'd had coffee with somebody. And I sat on that and he went back to do his training and I realised I had access to his email. And I got in there and I saw a couple of emails from this girl and she signed off saying, you make me feel loved. And it hit me that that is not what you say to somebody you're just having coffee with. And also she'd been doing that for a number of months. That was, that was actually, I think, the night before my birthday so that obviously had dinner together. Um, and this was about three months later. So it wasn't just coffee. This was an ongoing thing. I then also discovered that he had kept up a secret relationship with another woman that we knew. And when he was having his coffee on his uh, work trip, the you've got two kids. How yeah. old were the kids? I had an eight-month-old and a two-year-old, so very young. It obviously took a while for it to sink in. It did make the decision very easy for me that the marriage needed to end, that I didn't want to continue with the marriage. 
I then put my children first and decided that I was going to do everything I could for them. At the time, I had taken a redundancy and I wasn't working. I was on maternity leave because I had a young baby. So I had no income of my own coming in, uh, which made the whole process that much harder. He, once the marriage finished, he supported us for um, one week and then he cut all the funds. So then I was completely left on my own. It was, it was just hard and I knew it would be hard. I knew by that stage, I knew he was going to make it as hard as possible. What was it about him that made you realise that? <sighs> I don't know. I, I, sorry, I, I can't tell you one thing. I just know that as time went on, I suppose the stonewalling, I know the fact that when he's upset and when he's hurt, he makes you pay. So I knew. I knew it was going to be hard. Looking back now, Liz, does it seem to you that he was just very good at, you know, when you said that he was good at the romantic stuff at the beginning and you obviously felt attracted to him and that this was going to this was going to go well? Do you think he was just good at hiding all of the rest of the stuff that you've been talking about now or did he change? I think it was a bit of both, to be honest. I think in the beginning, yeah, in the beginning it was good. It was great in the beginning. But again, we were... We were travelling. It was a big adventure. And then when real life settled in, it got hard. And I think, Steve, that's not a, that's sort of a false assumption, your question, actually, is that the romantic person who's into flowers and chocolates cannot also be an angry, bitter person. It can be that it doesn't, he doesn't have to have changed. That Those can be both traits of his personality. Mm. Now I've told you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I accept that completely. I mean, look, our lives completely changed. We changed from being effectively backpackers on the adventures of, of a lifetime to settle down with a mortgage and children and responsibilities. It, it, that's a complete lifestyle turn. You had two young kids. Financially, he cut you off. What happened then? <sighs> it was hard. I knew that I had to get a job, so I started looking for a job. But there wasn't much around at that point in time. And I had two young kids, so I had to find out how to get them cared for. Luckily, I had a friend who had been through a divorce a few years ahead of me, and she pulled me aside and she said, you have to go on the, the single parent pension. Don't be ridiculous. Stop trying to do it all by yourself. And so I applied for that. So I ended up as a single mum on the single parent pension for probably about six months until I got myself a job. How long since all of this, Liz? About eight years. Let me guess, you got your divorce, you're happily co-parenting. It's easy to score. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we got the divorce, happily co-parenting, and our lives go on. No, yeah. that's not at all what happened. So once I told him the marriage was over, I actually told him via, I think, via email because we were barely talking by that stage. So he was actually living out of the house at the time because he was doing this training and he would come back on the weekends and now what I realised he was doing was he was slowly moving all of his stuff out. So he was slowly taking everything away. I think he knew what was going to happen, but I don't think he liked the fact that I was the one who made the final decision. I think that riled him up. So he didn't take it well when I said, that's it, we're done. He then made it as hard as he possibly could. As I said, he stopped the money coming in. So I was trying to live off whatever savings that we had. Um, I was trying to parent two small children on my own, which is, is hard, but that's really what kept me going day to day. 
is because I, I had to do it for the children there who kept me going. He then initiated mediation really quickly, which surprised me because I thought that meant maybe he wanted to try and work it through and work it out together. We did one mediation session and then he complained that I wasn't following whatever it was we'd agreed to. And he said the mediation wasn't working and he asked for the certificate. What I now think happened is that he always just wanted to go straight to court, but he had to have the mediation certificate before he could make it to court. So that's what that was all about. And as soon as he had the certificate, he got lawyers involved. And then you went into a legal battle that's still carrying on now. In one way or another, yes. Eight years down the track, we still have lawyers involved. Yes. The initial legal battle for the court orders probably took a couple of years. That was really hard and really difficult because you're in and out of court a couple of different times. As part of that process, the court wanted uh, a psychologist report, a family report. So we had to go in and have an appointment with a psychologist so she could see how we interacted with the children. That appointment was um, one after the other. So the children only had one appointment. So I went in first and then he went in after me. That was hard because he was sitting in the waiting room with the children and his new partner. So I had to walk past him with the children and his new partner. And then you're meant to sit in a room with a psychologist and naturally interact with your children so they can write a report that they're going to give to the um, to the court. Can I ask you about, about him and the children? Did he not feel any sense of responsibility? You said he cut you off without any money and he's been weaponizing everything he can to, to hurt you and, and as a single mum now, by implication, the children. Doesn't, did that never occur to him that he had a responsibility? You would like to think it does, but no. No, he never it always seems to have been more important for him to try and hurt me than for him to look after his children. Do you think he rationalises his behaviour as being the right thing for the kids, protecting the kids, or is he not that deep a thinker? (laughs) (laughs) He's not a deep thinker. I just think he is so focused on me that that just doesn't even come into his consideration. I can't answer on his behalf. I don't know why. I don't know why it's not important to him. The only way I've been able to get him to support the children is to go through the government and to get the government to take the money from directly from him because he will not do it with me. And yet he wants to see the children. He spends time with them. Yes. He values his relationship with the children. Yes, he does. Yeah. Yep. I don't know. If anybody can explain to me his behaviour, that would be fantastic. And I, I don't know why. What are some examples of some of the kind of combative ways he's interacted with you since since the separation? So we really only communicate via text message. We can't talk to each other. If I try and email him, I often won't get a response and I assume the emails just get deleted. What do we get? So some of the things he'll do to me is... He wants handovers to happen in a public place and he says that's because he's concerned about my behaviour. I have then said to him that he could pick the children up directly from school so that I'm completely out of the picture, but he refuses to do that. He wants me to be available to drop off the children. Uh, He will also sometimes at the last minute change the drop-off point. So he will give me a point where we need to drop the children off, where we need to meet and do the drop-off. 
and then maybe half an hour before that, he will change that location. Does he verbally abuse you? He has verbally abused me. <sighs> yes. <sighs> Often when we're doing a drop-off, he won't even acknowledge that I'm there. I will go to the drop-off point and he will turn up and the children will run over to him. I don't get a hello. I don't get any acknowledgement. The children just run over and see him and then it's easier if I just walk away. And is that worse than, I mean, when we talk about verbally abu- verbally abusing you, he, he calls you names and that kind of thing by, by text? He does call me names by text. In the past, he has verbally abused me. Um, we had one incident where in the early days, he turned up at the house to pick the children up. He said that there was something in the kids' room that belonged to him and then he barged his way into the house I asked him to leave and he refused to. He went into the kids' room. I said, if you don't leave, I'm calling the police. He still refused to leave and I I ended up calling the police. I can't remember whether he picked up whatever it was he was after or not, but he took the children and he left. I was on the phone to triple zero at that point in time, actually talking to them. And once he left, I told them that it was fine, that I, I no longer needed them, that he had left. A bit later, I received a message from him saying that he was unsure what he was allowed to do with the children now because he kept expecting the police to turn up on his door. So he turned it, turned it around back on me. Um, he also swore at me when he was in the house. I think he yeah, called me some not very nice names. Now, at the time, one of my kids was about three and they still remember that incident. How do the kids cope with all this going on? I try and protect the children as much as I can. They don't need to know what's going on. They don't need to know that their parents are fighting in the background. So I try and shield them as much as I can. I have got mental health plans for them both and they both have access and they both go and see the school psychologist so they can talk through anything they want to talk through. Because the kids' behaviour, I was going to say increases, but they're during changeover times, their behaviour yeah, their negative behaviour really increases. So it's also trying to work out how the um, the changeovers can be as smooth as possible. How is it possible to co-parent with someone who doesn't return your messages? You what, can't. So what are there? There is no co-parenting. <laughs> you can't do it. So on a practical level, what happens when you have to make a decision that where you should be consulting with him? So I've got two examples. My oldest child needed to change schools. So I was the one who went and did all of the investigation. I went and looked at all of the schools. Uh, One of the schools had an open day and I told him about the open day. I got back a message that I could do whatever I wanted. Thank you for letting me know. We ended up putting them in the new school. I then got a letter from a lawyer saying that this decision had been made without him. He got he got a lawyer involved again for that. So lawyers every time you turn around. Every time I turn around there's a there's a different lawyer. You had a, another example. My daughter has got some additional needs and some challenging behaviour. So she needs um, some intervention services. So we have reports that recommend that she goes and sees a psychologist and a speech pathologist and he withholds consent the whole time. So, for example, the psychologist has said that in order to see her, they need both parents' consent. He doesn't refuse to give it, but he just does not provide it. It makes it very difficult for that child to then get the help and assistance that they need. 
I have had to seek legal advice on that as well to try and work out how this child can get the help that they need because their father is not providing that to them. What do you think it has cost you? Not the dollars? Emo- well, yeah, not the, I mean, there's the emotional toll and that's, I'm sure, indescribable. But yeah, in terms of lawyers, I don't even want to think about it, to be honest. I really don't. The divorce itself cost about $60,000. Plus, we've got ongoing legal fees happening at the moment. And what do you think it has cost you emotionally? I couldn't even tell you. In terms of your own mental health? Mm. Every time I have to, every time I get a message from him, Every time I have to see him as part of a, a, an exchange, my anxiety levels just peak. This will sound like a crazy question, but do you ever wish you hadn't separated in that if you'd stayed married to this person, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have this level of conflict? I mean, a different kind of conflict. Not at all. I think his behaviour shown that, that I made the right decision. And yet, though, if you hadn't met him, you wouldn't have your daughters. Exactly. I'm not suggesting that he is a good person to be married to, <laughs> but some some people find it easier to stay married because it gives them influence over the behaviour. Yes, and I think we tried that. We tried that and it didn't work. And you're in a relationship now? Yes, I am, in a new relationship. What's the effect on that relationship? It certainly puts a lot of pressure on that relationship. So my new partner has moved in with us. And as I said, my daughter has some challenging behaviour and we have reports that indicate why why that behaviour is challenging. But Damien continues to blame me and my partner for our bad parenting. That's the reason she has the bad behaviour. Um, he has also accused my partner of inappropriate discipline and he made a complaint to the police about this. As a result of that complaint, the police automatically put an intervention order on on my partner and then the police investigated the claim. So the police spoke to my children at the school. They spoke to the school teachers. They spoke to me and then they came and they spoke to both of us together. As a result of that investigation, there was a report written. The report states that there was no inappropriate discipline. However, the intervention order is still in place. So we're now in another process to try and get that removed, which involves more lawyers and more court. To someone who's thankfully never had to go through all of this, Liz, I can't understand. So the intervention order was put in place, one would assume, pending an investigation, which has now concluded. Yes. And the intervention order remains? And you have to go and get it? Yes. We have to use our own money and our own lawyers to get the intervention order removed. Because if we don't do that, the intervention order remains. How can there be an intervention order when your partner, let's call him Mr Darcy, is living in the house with you and your daughters? I don't even know how to start this. Um, It makes it very, very difficult, really difficult. There is an interim intervention order in place at the moment and if, for whatever reason, my partner is seen to break that, he will end up in court. So an example of where he might be seen to to break that is if he destroys any property belonging to the child. Now, if my partner accidentally steps on something and breaks it and the child blames him and then goes to their father and says, he broke my toy, that's breaking the intervention order. And then he'd be charged. And then he would end up in court and he would be charged. This is like Alice in Wonderland meets Franz Kafka, I think. And I get 
the feeling from what you've said that, I mean, without second-guessing Damien's intentions, it sounds to me like control. He's now controlling your relationship within your house. He can't physically enter your house, but he can use legal means to get in there. So it's a form of legal abuse. Yes. He is using the law to try and control me and and my partner. And, And as I said, it's now affecting everybody in the house, withholding the consent for services and the control for my partner. So it affects everybody. What does the future hold for you? This has been going on for years. Mm-hmm. At some point, the kids will age out, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, once the children turn 18, the court order will no longer be valid. But until then, I don't know. I really don't know what the future holds. It continues to be incredibly difficult. I always thought he might keep this up for a couple of years, but he it has just been ongoing. And look, sometimes it comes in waves. Sometimes we get a period where it's not too bad and then something will happen and it all just flares up again. So even when it starts to look like things are going along okay, something will happen and it it, it doesn't. It just flares all up again. So I don't know. I'm trying to work on how I best deal with my communication with him and how to not only protect the kids from it, but also how to ensure that moving forward, they are best prepared to deal with the future. It's not often, Liz, that I find myself at the end of one of the interviews that we do, not quite sure what to say. I don't know what to say. The first thing I want to say is thank you so much for being so brave and open as to come and talk to us about this. And I think it's very important that people hear a story such as this. It's so easy. And you see it on social media all of the time. People make such stupid, mindless assumptions and judgments about how other people should behave in circumstances that they have no imagination, no ability to comprehend. It's an incredibly difficult story to listen to, let alone to live it. Mm. You're amazing. I think Mr. Darcy must be pretty good too. (laughs) Mr. Darcy puts up with an awful lot. No, he really does. When he moved in, I don't think either of us knew how difficult it would be. And he is just doing really well. And I feel awful that he's been dragged into this. And I fear, Liz, that although your story is unique, it's not uncommon. You're representative of thousands. I don't know how many people going through this kind of um, psychological torture. I think there's probably a lot of us out there. So, Liz, what would you tell your past self? I would tell my past self, A, that I've got this and I can do it, and B, don't be afraid to reach out for help. I think I took too long. I think I tried to do too much on my own, Um, but there is help out there and you shouldn't be afraid to seek it. If someone is listening to this and they recognise all too much, you know, too much of it sounds familiar, where would you start? Go and get a mental health plan. Go and see a GP and get a mental health plan. If you are working and your company has an employee assistance program, use that because that is normally paid for by the company. And then there are a lot of other services out there. So find a counsellor and get mental health support. Definitely say start with your GP because they often have access to a lot of different services. So Liz, that's a, a hugely important story. Very difficult to listen to, must be incredibly difficult to live through. Um, so thank you so much for sharing. Thank you for letting me share. Wow, that's that's a lot. It's hard to hear, isn't it? It really is. Congratulations to anyone who's still with us. (laughs) Both of you. (laughs) I found that very, very hard to sit through. 
you know, obviously I've been aware of it before, but to hear somebody put it all together and lay out the, the misery and all of the lowlights, very tough. Steve, what do we do when things are, are that bad? How do we find resilience? Is it just hoping, okay, in uh, in 10 years, this will imp- my kids will be older and, and this will pass? Or, or is there more than that? I was very struck by Liz's resilience and bravery and that she's been able to find, you know, life after all of that. She's found a new partner and, yeah, okay, so he's got dragged into this somewhat as well and it certainly hasn't been plain sailing. But, you know, you could imagine someone really, really becoming embittered about the world and about and very suspicious of anybody else. But Liz hasn't done that. She's managed to find someone who sounds like a, I don't know him, but he sounds like a, a terrific bloke. And she's chosen to to open her heart again. And I have met, I've certainly met people who, having been through a, a devastatingly bad relationship, have not been willing to to look at at a, a new relationship or or to make those those connections. We were walking our little old dog this morning. He's about three quarters blind. He's seventeen or something. Uh, so he sort of walks into trees. You let him walk into trees. You're the people with the eyes. Shouldn't you be doing something about that? It's harder than it sounds. Okay. <laughs> But little Patch hasn't lost. He's he just bounces off them. <laughs> it's like, oh, there was a tree there. How did I not notice that? And then he just carries on. He's got this unbelievably sweet and apparently optimistic nature where, you know, you could imagine another another old dog just curling up and, and not wanting to engage with the world at all. I don't know what makes one dog different from another dog or one person different from another person. It's a, it's a mystery to me. Maybe it's the nature of the breed. Liz has a, an inbuilt <laughs> optimism or, or resilience. <laughs> you know, I, I, and, and often I think, this may be true of Liz as well, she may not know quite how brave and resilient and resourceful that she is because her experience is of all of the, the bad stuff all of the the downsides and all of the ways that things get out of control and he continues to exert control. That's obviously where her focus is and you can't blame her a bit. But I wonder if she knows quite how extraordinary she is. Well, I hope she's listening to this. I'm sure that that everybody who is listening will will agree with you. On the other hand, because you did ask me a question and I, I know I didn't answer it, Remember her saying that one of the pieces of advice that she gave is, you know, seek a, seek help early and don't be ashamed or afraid to go and get it. There's something of an answer there to your question. There are various different kinds of help, psychological, professional, legal. You should go and get it's it. It's a bit of a balance, isn't it? Not to jump into it and anticipate trouble, but not to leave it too late until you're you're deep in the in the mire before you seek help. So finding that the right moment of, okay, there's something coming that I don't like the look of. Yeah. And I don't mean this to sound like she should have listened to her own advice because when you're in the the maelstrom, when you're in that tunnel, you really don't know until afterwards what you, what you should have known, you know, what would have been helpful to know at the time. But I guess for anybody else listening is before we listen to Liz, we talked about this ideal about marriage and there's still also this ideal that, that you can get yourself out of trouble, that all it takes is you know, reasonableness and patience and determination, and you can fix just about any situation. Well, Liz is 
living proof that that ain't the case. And particularly where you've got someone who is determined to exert control that, you know, the best will in the world, you're not going to be able to fix it by yourself and you will need help and you should not be ashamed or afraid to try and get it. And sadly, you won't get knocked over in the rush by that, you know, that aid will not come to you. And you may need to use an awful lot of determination to access it because it's not nearly as readily available as it should be. I am sure of that. But it is there for those who push and push and push. I think that's great advice, Steve. And I think it applies actually to to pretty much any situation. There is help and support out there for really everything that's within the realm of human experience. And I've seen it very often that people, their reaction is almost, gosh, just wish that I'd done this a lot sooner, accessed this help. It would have made such such a difference to have done so sooner. So don't wait, don't hesitate. What's the worst that can happen if you go too early for help and get it? I don't know. <laughs> but it certainly sounds from Liz's story that, you know, she feels that they're a lot closer to the end than to the beginning of all of this horribleness and that her and her partner and their children have are building a life together, which I hope will go on even longer than your 10-year contract that you were suggesting. <laughs> Happy and fulfilled, but only till 2031. <laughs>